Section 8 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals, by Charles Lewis Cornish, Editor. Chapter 2. The Cat Tribe. Though only one species is entirely domesticated, and none of the cats have flesh edible by man, except perhaps the puma, no group of animals has attracted more interest than this. Containing more than 40 species, ranging in size from the ox-devouring tiger or lion to the small wild cats, they are so alike in habit and structure that no one could possibly mistake the type or go far wrong in guessing at the habits of any one of them. They are all flesh-eaters and destroyers of living animals. All have rounded heads, and an extraordinary equipment of teeth and of claws, and of muscles to use them. The blow of the forearm of a lion or tiger is inconceivably powerful, in proportion to its size. A stroke from a tiger's paw has been known to strike off a native's arm from the shoulder, and leave it hanging by a piece of skin, and a similar blow from a lion to crush the skull of an ox. The true cats are known by the power to draw back, or retract their claws, into sheaths of horn, rendering their footsteps noiseless and keeping these weapons always sharp. The hunting leopard has only a partial capacity for doing this. The characteristics of the cats and their allies are too well known to need description. We will therefore only mention the chief types of the group, and proceed to give, in the fullest detail which space allows, authentic anecdotes of their life and habits. The tribe includes lions, tigers, leopards, pumas, jaguars, a large number of so-called tiger cats, spotted and striped, wild cats, domestic cats, and lynxes. The hunting leopard, or cheetah, stands in a subgroup by itself, as does the fossa, the only large carnivore of Madagascar. This closes the list of the most cat-like animals. The next links in the chain are formed by the civets and gannets, creatures with more or less retractable claws and long bushy tails. The still less cat-like bincherong, a creature with a prehensile tail, and the mongooses and ichneumons, more and more nearly resembling the weasel tribe. Recent intrusions for railways, sport, discovery, and war into Central and East Africa have opened up new lion countries, and confirmed in the most striking manner the stories of the power, the prowess, and the dreadful destructiveness to man and beast of this king of the carnivora. At present it is found in Persia, on the same rivers where Nimrod and the Assyrian kings made its pursuit their royal sport, in Gujarat, where it is nearly extinct, though in General Price's work on Indian game, written before the middle of the last century, it is stated that a cavalry officer killed 80 lions in three years, and in Africa, from Algeria to the Bechuana country. It is especially common in Somaliland, where the modern lion hunter mainly seeks his sport. On the Uganda Railway, from Mombasa to Lake Victoria, Lions are very numerous and dangerous. In Rhodesia and the northern Transvaal they have killed hunters, railway officials, and even our soldiers near Kamati Port. It has been found that whole tracts of country are still often deserted by their inhabitants from fear of lions, and that the accounts of their ravages contained in the Old Testament, telling how Samaria was almost deserted a second time from this cause, might be paralleled today. When, in the latter half of the 17th century, Europeans first settled at the Cape of Good Hope, 
the lion's roar was probably to be heard almost nightly on the slopes of Table Mountain, since a quaint entry in the diary of Van Riebeck, the first Dutch governor of the Cape, runs thus. This night the lions roared as if they would take the fort by storm, the said fort being situated on the site of the city now known as Cape Town. At that date there can be little doubt that, excepting in the waterless deserts and the dense equatorial forests, lions roamed over the whole of the vast continent of Africa, from Cape Agulhas to the very shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Nor was their range very seriously curtailed until the spread of European settlements in North and South Africa and the acquisition of firearms by the Aboriginal inhabitants of many parts of the country, during the latter half of the 19th century, steadily denuded large areas of all wild game. As the game vanished, the lions disappeared too, for although at first they preyed to a large extent on the domestic flocks and herds which gradually replaced the wild denizens of the once uninhabited plains, this practice brought them into conflict with the white colonists or native herdsmen armed with weapons of precision, before whom they rapidly succumbed. Today lions are still to be found wherever game exists in any quantity, and their numbers will be in proportion to those of the wild animals on which they prey. The indefinite increase of lions must be checked by some unknown law of nature, otherwise they would have become so numerous in the sparsely inhabited or altogether uninhabited parts of Africa, that they would have first exterminated all the game on which they had been wont to prey, and would then have had to starve or to have eaten one another. But such a state of things has never been known to occur, and whenever Europeans have entered a previously unexplored and uninhabited tract of country in Africa, and have found it teeming with buffaloes, zebras and antelopes, they have always found lions in such districts very plentiful indeed, but never in such numbers as to seriously diminish the abundance of the game upon which they depended for food. It is easy to understand that the increase of a herd of herbivorous animals would be regulated by the amount of the food supply available, as well as constantly checked by the attacks of the large carnivora, such as lions, leopards, cheetahs, hyenas, and wild dogs. But I have never been able to comprehend what has kept within bounds the inordinate increase of lions and other carnivorous animals, in countries where for ages past they have had an abundant food supply and at the same time, having been almost entirely unmolested by human beings, have had no enemies. Perhaps such a state of things does not exist at the present day, but there are many parts of Africa where such conditions have existed from time immemorial up to within quite recent years. Since lions were once to be found over the greater portion of the vast continent of Africa, it is self-evident that these animals were able to accommodate themselves to great variations of climate and surroundings and I myself have met with them, close to the sea, in the hot and sultry coastlands of southeast Africa, on the high plateau of Mashonaland, where at an altitude of 6,000 feet above sea level, the winter nights are cold and frosty, amongst the stony hills to the east of the Victoria Falls of the Zambesi, and in the swamps of the Chobe. In the great reed beds of the latter river, a certain number of lions appeared to live constantly, preying on buffaloes and lechwe antelopes. I often heard them roaring at nights in these swamps, and I once saw two big male lions wading slowly across an open space between two beds of reeds in water nearly a foot in depth. Although there are great individual differences in lions as regards size, general colour of coat, and more particularly in the length, colour and profuseness of the mane with which the males are adorned, yet as these differences occur in every part of Africa where lions are met with, 
and since constant varieties with one fixed type of mane living by themselves, and not interbreeding with other varieties do not exist anywhere, modern zoologists are, I think, now agreed that there is only one species of lion, since in any large series of wild lion skins, made in any particular district of Africa or Asia, every gradation will be found between the finest maned specimens and those which are destitute of any mane at all. Several local races have, however, been recently described by German writers. In the hot and steamy coastlands of tropical Africa, lions usually have short manes, and never, I believe, attain the long silky black manes sometimes met with on the high plateau of the interior. However, there is, I believe, no part of Africa where all or even the majority of male lions carry heavy manes, the long hair of which does not, as a rule, cover more than the neck and chest, with a tag of varying length and thickness extending from the back of the neck to between the shoulder blades. Lions with very full black manes, covering the whole shoulders, are rare anywhere, but more likely to be encountered on the high plateau, where the winter nights are extremely cold, than anywhere else. In such cases, in addition to the tufts of hair always found on the elbows, and in the armpits of lions with fair-sized manes, there will probably be large tufts of hair in each flank, just where the thighs join the belly. But I have never yet seen the skin of a lion shot within the last 30 years, with the whole belly covered with long thick hair, as may constantly be observed in lions kept in captivity in the menageries of Europe. There is, however, some evidence to show that, when lions existed on the high plains of the Cape Colony and the Orange River Colony, where the winter nights are much colder than in the countries farther north where lions may still be encountered, certain individuals of the species developed a growth of long hair all over the belly, as well as an extraordinary luxuriance of mane on the neck and shoulders. From the foregoing remarks it will be seen that wild lions, having as a rule much less luxuriant manes than many examples of their kind to be seen in European menageries, are ordinarily not so majestic and dignified in appearance as many of their caged relatives. On the other hand, the wild lion is a much more alert and active animal than a menagerie specimen, and when in good condition is far better built and more powerful looking, being free from all appearance of lankiness and weakness in the legs, and having strong, well-formed hindquarters. The eyes of the menagerie lion, too, look brown and usually sleepy, whilst those of the wild animal are yellow and extraordinarily luminous even after death. When wounded and standing at bay, with head held low between his shoulders, growling hoarsely, and with twitching tail, even if he is not near enough to be observed very closely, a lion looks a very savage and dangerous animal. But should he be wounded in such a way as to admit of a near approach, perhaps by a shot that has paralysed his hindquarters, his flaming eyes will seem to throw out sparks of living fire. Speaking generally, there is little or no danger in meeting a lion or lions in the daytime. Even in parts of the country where firearms are unknown, and where the natives seldom or never interfere with them, these animals seem to have an instinctive fear of man, and even when encountered at the carcass of an animal freshly killed, and at a time when they may be supposed to be hungry, they will almost invariably retreat before the unwelcome presence, sometimes slowly and sulkily, but in districts where much hunting with firearms has been going on at a very rapid pace. However, I have known of two cases of Europeans mounted on horseback having been attacked by lions in broad daylight, and Dr Livingston mentions a third. In one of the instances which came into my own knowledge, a lion sprang at a boar hunter as he was riding slowly along, 
carrying an elephant gun in his right hand, and followed by a string of natives on foot. The lion attacked from the left side, and with its right paw seized my friend from behind by the right side of his face and neck, inflicting deep gashes with its sharp claws, one of which cut right through his cheek and tore out one of his teeth. My friend was pulled from the horse, but clutching the loosely girthed saddle tightly with his knees, it twisted round under the horse's belly before he fell to the ground. Instead of following up its success, the lion, probably scared by the shouting of the Kaffirs, trotted away for a short distance, and then turned and stood looking at the dismounted hunter, who, having never lost his presence of mind, immediately shot it dead with his heavy old muzzle-loading elephant gun. Besides these three instances, of Europeans having been attacked in the daytime by lions, I have known of a certain number of natives having been killed in broad daylight. Such incidents are, however, by no means everyday occurrences, and speaking generally, it may be said that the risk of molestation by lions in Africa during daylight is very small. It is by night that lions roam abroad with stealthy step in search of prey, and at such times they are often, when hungry, incredibly bold and daring. I have known them upon several occasions to enter a hunter's camp, and regardless of fires, to seize oxen and horses and human beings. During the year following the first occupation of Mashonaland in 1890, a great deal of damage was done by lions, which could not resist the attraction of the settlers' livestock. For the first few months I kept as accurate an account as I could of the number of horses, donkeys, oxen, sheep, goats and pigs which were killed by lions and it soon mounted up to over 200 head. During the same time, several white men were also mauled by lions, and one unfortunate man named Teal was dragged from beneath the cart, where he was sleeping by the side of a native driver, and at once killed and eaten. Several of the horses were killed inside rough shelters serving as stables. In the following year, 1891, over 100 pigs were killed in one night by a single lioness. These pigs were in a series of pens, separated one from another, but all under one low-thatched roof. The lioness forced her way in between two poles, and apparently was unable, having satisfied her hunger, to find her way out again, and becoming angry and frightened, wandered backwards and forwards through the pens, killing almost all the pigs, each one with a bite at the back of the head or neck. This lioness, which had only eaten portions of two young pigs, made her escape before daylight, but was killed with a set gun the next night by the owner of the pigs. When lions grow old, they are always liable to become man-eaters. Finding their strength failing them, and being no longer able to hunt and pull down large antelopes or zebras, they are driven by hunger to killing small animals, such as porcupines and even tortoises, or they may visit a native village and catch a goat, or kill a child or woman going for water. And finding a human being a very easy animal to catch and kill, an old lion which has once tasted human flesh will in all probability continue to be a man-eater until he is killed. On this subject, in his missionary travels, Dr. Livingston says, A man-eater is invariably an old lion, and when he overcomes his fear of man so far as to come to villages for goats, the people remark his teeth are worn, he will soon kill men. They at once acknowledge the necessity of instant action and turn out to kill him. It is the promptness with which measures are taken by the greater part of the natives of southern Africa to put an end to any lion which may take to eating men that prevents these animals as a rule from becoming the formidable pests which man-eating tigers appear to be in parts of India. But man-eating lions in Africa are not invariably old animals. 
one which killed 37 human beings in 1887 on the Majili River to the northwest of the Victoria Falls of the Zambesi, was, when at last he was killed, found to be an animal in the prime of life, whilst the celebrated man-eaters of the Tsavo River in East Africa were also apparently strong, healthy animals. These two man-eating lions caused such consternation amongst the Indian workmen on the Uganda Railway that the work of construction was considerably retarded, the helpless coolies refusing to remain any longer in a country where they were liable to be eaten on any night by a man-eating lion. Both these lions were at last shot by one of the engineers on the railway, Mr. J. H. Patterson, but not before they had killed and devoured 28 Indian coolies and an unknown number of native Africans. End of section 8. Recording by Julian Prattley.